Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I want to invite all of our guests to hopefully come back and see us again sometime. We're glad that you're here this morning. Get us a, a chance to get to know you a little better. I want to start this morning in 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you turn there, 1 Kings chapter 3. Again, we are glad that you are here. We hope you feel welcomed and at home. Starting in verse 16 of 1 Kings chapter 3. Here's what we read. It says, Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Give me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king. The king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son, and said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is the mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now, there are a few things I want to point out from this story as we begin this morning. And the first thing is that first line. Notice it says the two women were harlots. In other words, they weren't perfect. They were prostitutes. They were imperfect people. And yet they come to the king for him to render a judgment. I realize there may be some women sitting here this morning who are mothers who deal with the guilt of not being perfect. You want to be perfect, you want to do everything perfectly, but you know as well as I do that doesn't happen. And you feel guilty. And so I want to tell you this morning that you are not condemned for having a messy house. You are not condemned because you don't want to have any more kids. You're not condemned because you have a desire to get away sometimes and have some alone time. You're not condemned because your body doesn't look like it did before you had children. You're not condemned because you cannot afford to buy really nice things for your kids. You're not condemned because you don't live up to the standard of your mother-in-law. You're not condemned because your kid screams at the top of his lungs during worship. And you're not condemned even though you feel guilty most of the time. Nobody's perfect. No mother is perfect. Your mother wasn't perfect. She may have been close, 
but she wasn't. No mother is perfect because nobody is perfect. But I think mothers a lot of times put pressure on themselves to be perfect, and then they feel guilty when they're not. I want to encourage you not to set a standard for yourself that is unrealistic. These women were harlots, and even though you've never stooped to harlotry, you're still not perfect, and you never will be, and that's okay. I want you to notice something else from this story. Notice that the woman brought her child to the king. I doubt the guilty woman wanted to take this action. But the mother that was innocent wanted to bring the child before the king because she was confident in his wisdom and was hoping that he would render a judgment that would return the child to her. But they brought the child to the king. All of us as mothers and as fathers must constantly bring our child before the king. Remember last week we talked about Hannah and her story in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She struck a deal with God. If you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And all of us as parents need to strike that deal with God. You've given me a child, or if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. These women brought the child to the king. And notice that the king had time for them. Because the king always has time for you. Even though you're not perfect, even though you may have sinned greatly, the king still has time for you. And he still wants you to come before him and to bring your children before him. And then I want you to notice also the sacrifice of this mother. We all know that mothers are all about sacrifice. They sacrifice their time and their energy and their money and all, all the things that come with being a mother. But this mother was willing to sacrifice motherhood so that her child might live. If it came down to dividing the child, if it came down to killing it rather than allowing the child to live, she felt that it was better for him to live, even though she would no longer perhaps be his mother. You mothers know all about sacrifice. You know all about giving up things. I don't believe there's a mother here that probably sides with the cruel and selfish, heartless woman that tried to steal this baby. Because motherhood is about sacrifice, and we understand that. It's about protection. It's about bringing our child before the king and seeking his protection for our children. You know, all across America today, mothers are going to be honored. And preachers are going to say some nice things about mothers, and they're going to say, perhaps, they're going to approach it from the angle of, you know, we need to honor our mothers. Mothers are great. You know, mothers uh, need to be like Mary or like Hannah. Let's honor our mothers. Some preachers will talk about how mothers maybe need to step it up a bit. You know, let's honor our mothers, but mothers, here's how you can do better. And then maybe the angle is, happy Mother's Day, now let's talk about something totally different than mothers. And out of those three options, probably the last one's my favorite. Because I've got to be honest with you, Mother's Day sermons are tricky. They're complicated. And the reason they're complicated is because not all of us have had a good experience with our mothers. Not everyone can be a mother. Not everyone has had a good experience as a mother. I'm totally aware that there may be a couple here this morning who has recently suffered a miscarriage. There may be a woman here this morning that would love more than anything to have children but is unable to. There may be someone in the audience this morning whose mother has recently passed away. There may be someone here this morning who had an abusive mother. And there may be someone here this morning who at some point in their lives 
as a mother gave their child up for, an, for adoption. For many, Mother's Day is not so happy. It's a complicated, convoluted mess. So how do we handle this day? How, as the preacher, do I handle this day? And it's a question that I've asked myself over and over again every year as we come to Mother's Day. I believe that mothers should be honored, no doubt. It is a monumental task. Mothers should be honored and not just one day out of the year. I don't think that this is the only day that kids should actually do what they're told and, and fathers should actually be on their best behavior and help their mothers out or help their wives out. I don't think this is the only day that that should happen. I think that mothers should be honored each and every day, but I think we need to be careful not to idealize motherhood to the point that we leave others feeling guilty. And I think sometimes we do that, unfortunately. You know, God still loves those who are not mothers. He still loves the women who are not mothers, who are not married, who perhaps cannot have children. He still loves all folks. He, he, he loves mothers, but he doesn't love them more because he loves us all. And I think we need to be careful not to idolize the position of being a mother to the point that we alienate others. I don't want this Mother's Day sermon to be like a vacuum cleaner as a gift kind of thing. I, I hope it doesn't come across that way. I think that happens all too often, and it really, it really kind of bothers me, and I think I've shared this before, how so often preachers talk about Mother's Day, and they say, let's honor mothers, and mothers are great, and how wonderful our mothers are, and then it comes to Father's Day, and we bash the fathers and say we, they need to step it up, and they're not doing their job and all that. Have you noticed that? Can we just get it out on the table that both mothers and fathers are imperfect? Can we just say that? Yes, we need to honor our mothers. Yes, we need to honor our fathers, but neither one of them are perfect. And that's okay. And not all fathers are Ray Romano or Tim Allen. And not all mothers are June Cleaver or Carol Brady. Ask your parents to ask, you know, ask them who those people are. We're all imperfect. And I think dads do a, a poor job sometimes in that they want to honor their wife as a mother and they want to talk about how great they are as a mother, but I think sometimes they incriminate themselves in the process. I've heard dads say things like, well, you know, I just kind of let her handle the day-to-day -day stuff with the kids. Well, when Paul spoke, when he wrote those words in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger and he said, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Who was he talking to? He's talking to fathers. Fathers, we have been tasked with the opportunity and the responsibility to be the spiritual head of our household. We can't leave all the day-to-day -day operations to the mother. You know, I hear dads do that sometimes, and husbands do that. Well, you know, I rule the roost, but she rules the rooster. I wear the pants, but she tells me how to put them on. And we incriminate ourselves in the process. And we say things like that. And, and if you've ever noticed that being said in a public setting where, you know, a guy says, well, I'm the head, but she's the neck that turns the head. And you look at the, the wife, many times you'll see her going, I think it bothers them. Because I don't think they want their husband saying that. I think they want their husband chipping in and saying, I'm going to take my load. I'm going to shoulder the responsibility of, of leading this household spiritually, and I'm not going to leave that on you, and I'm certainly not going to emasculate myself in the process. I think our mothers want a dad who will step up to the plate 
and do the job that he has been commissioned to do by God. I think that's the greatest gift that we can give them instead of just allowing them to handle all the day-to-day stuff. I've got a question for you. Is being a mother the most important job in the world? You'll hear a lot of preachers say that. A lot of preachers on a Mother's Day sermon will say, being a mother is the most important job in the world. And to that I would say, no, it's not. And before you throw something at me, let me explain. How would you feel if someone told you that their job was more important than your job? That would change the relationship, wouldn't it? If one of our firemen in this congregation went to one of our policemen in this congregation and said, you know, I respect what you do, but you know being a fireman is more important than being a policeman. That would change the relationship, wouldn't it? You might can still get along, but it would change the relationship. Think about the message that we send when we talk about being a mother as the most important job in the world. That changes the relationship with all the other women in the congregation that aren't mothers, right? And I think it adds to the guilt and the shame and the feeling of, of maybe not having as much value and worth because that's what our culture does, unfortunately. Unfortunately, our culture so many times says if you don't have kids or if you're not married, then you're not worth as much, and that's not true. Being a mother is a monumental task. It is a great job. But every job that we as Christians do is important. The father's job is a monumental task. So is grandma and grandpa's job, aunts, uncles. The church in its entirety has an important job, a monumental job. Being a mother is a very important job. It's not the most important. Since Mother's Day can be tricky, here's my approach this morning. I want to talk to all the women, not just the mothers. And I want to talk to all the men not just the fathers. And I want to talk to everyone who is here this morning. I realize that attendance on Mother's Day rivals that of Christmas and Easter. A lot of men come to church on Mother's Day because it's a favor to their mother or to their wife. And if you've done that this morning, then I want to welcome you. I thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you can walk away with something this morning that you can use. Because this lesson is for everybody. For our mothers, yes, but for everybody. Turn to Judges chapter 2. And in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it reads, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Underline that last line, because it's important for us to read, to grasp, and to apply. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. 
My friends, we've got to start thinking generationally when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our children. Mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, friends, the church. We've got to start thinking generationally when it comes to Christianity. We need to think of it like a chain. And every link in the chain is important. Maybe you're like me and you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You can start the chain. It only takes one generation to start the chain. It also only takes one generation to break it, too. Don't be the weak link. We've got to start thinking generationally when it comes to raising our children. And everyone is involved in that process. Again, if you go back to the text we just read, and there arose among them another generation who did not know the Lord or his works. How does that happen? I mean, you have the ten plagues, you have the parting of the Red Sea, you have the quail, the manna. How did they not know about this stuff? Because no one told them. No one recited the story. It stopped getting told. And isn't it disheartening and sobering that only one generation can drop the ball? It just takes one. We've got to start thinking generationally. Everything you do within your home should be directed at helping the next generation grab hold of faith and pass it down. Each generation must be taught who God is and what he has done for mankind. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We've got to continue reciting the story. My kids never really knew my father-in-law, which is a shame. Because Libby's, Libby's dad, and by the way, Libby is with her, her mother this morning. Both of her grandparents are very ill. I mean, they're in their 90s. Don't expect them to be here much longer. We would covet your prayers for, for them. She is down there this weekend. But her father died of a brain tumor back in 2001, and my kids really never got to know him. They never got, not got to know this, this loving and kind Christian man. And that's a shame. But I hold out hope that one day there will be a resurrection in heaven. That there will be this reunion that they get to see their grandfather. And I realize the Bible talks about how our earthly relationships will be changed somewhat. But I still hold out hope that they will be there someday and that they will get to meet their grandfather. And if I want that to happen, then I've got to do what it takes right now to ensure that that happens. I've got to start thinking generationally. I've got to start building a faith heritage right now and start building a legacy of faith right now so that the chain becomes stronger and stronger with each subsequent generation. Notice Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. From the very beginning, God expected faith to be handed down. I sometimes hear people say, well, you know, faith is personal. I'm going to let them figure that out. That's not biblical. The Bible says that you are to pass down your faith. That there is this, this faith heritage that must be developed in your home so that each 
passing generation grabs hold of it and passes it down. I want you to notice something else, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 9, it says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. We often think that grandparents have the major responsibility of spoiling their kids and sending them home. But God says, grandparents, you're involved in this whole faith heritage thing. You have a job. It doesn't end when your kids leave the home. You're involved in the development and the nurture of your grandchildren's faith. You may not have full ownership in that, in that you have number one responsibility, but you still have a responsibility, right? Your kids shouldn't have to be deprogrammed when they get back home from grandma and grandpa's house. You have a job as well. The Bible presents faith as something that is generational, even over into the New Testament. When we see the faith of Timothy that came from his grandmother and his mother, and it was passed down, we've got to start thinking generationally about faith. Or maybe we think of it this way. Maybe we look at it like a relay race and passing the baton. If you keep up with track and field, if you know anything about track and field, you know that, that in a relay race, you pass the baton to the next runner, and you have to do so within the exchange zone. And ideally, you want to do so as quickly as possible without having to slow down as much as possible so that you can win the race. But if you drop the baton, if you don't hand it off in the required exchange zone, then you lose, right? This has been the problem for the U.S. Olympic sprinters a lot of times in the relay races. Most often, we've had the fastest team. We've won about 75% of the relay races in the Olympics. And the times that we've lost, it hasn't been because we were the slowest, at least not most of the time. It's been because we've dropped the baton or we didn't hand it off in the exchange zone. And we've got to think about passing the baton in a spiritual sense. What's it mean to hand the baton off to the next generation so that they'll keep running with it? If we drop it, there's no guarantee that the next generation is going to pick it up and keep running with it. And so it's up to us to ensure that we hand it off while they're in a dead sprint. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. And if you'll notice... In regards to the Ten Commandments, you probably knew this already, but you can kind of make a, a separation with the Ten Commandments. The first four and the last six. The first four deal with our relationship with man, right? The first four deal with the Israelites' relationship to God, excuse me, not man. So the first four are vertical. It's man's relationship to God. The second part, or the next six, deal with the horizontal aspect of humanity. It's man's relationship to man. And so, if you look at the very first commandment as given by our Lord, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, remember, the Israelites were living in a land that had many gods. And God is saying, I want exclusive rights to your heart. He's demanding that. He's not saying, put me on the list at the top above all your other gods. He's saying, there is no list. I'm the list. It starts and it ends with me. Because I'm the only one that deserves to be there, to reside in your hearts exclusively. 
And if you'll notice, that first commandment there sets the tone for all the others, especially the first four. You get the vertical aspect right when you follow or carry out that first one. I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. If you get that one right, then you're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. You're going to be someone who, um, who doesn't take the Lord's name in vain and all those others that follow, right? God knew what he was doing by setting the precedent with that commandment. Then you move on to the next six. They're horizontal, dealing with man's relationship with man. Honor your father and mother is the first one of that next six. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord gives you. Why that one? Why before do not steal, do not commit adultery, and all those others? Why honor your mother and father? Because God knew in his infinite wisdom, if you get that one right, you're going to be less likely to steal, to commit adultery, to do all those other things that are mentioned afterward. And a relationship with your parents, if you honor and, 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 and give credence to the godly raising that was given to you, then you're more than likely going to honor God as well, and it's all going to fall into place. Does that make sense? It's amazing how God laid these out for us to see for the Israelites to grab hold of and say, if you want the right relationship with God and your fellow man, here's how you get it. Honor me first, but then honor your parents. I believe that children get their first taste of God from their parents. What kind of behavior are we modeling to them? Notice that they're that there is a commandment here about honoring your father and your mother is the only one that comes with a promise as well, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. While these commandments were given to a specific people at a specific time, there's certainly a principle that is timeless, right? And it's this. Home is where the start is. That's where this all begins. You can bring your children to Bible class every Sunday, and I hope that you do. You can make sure that they're in worship every Sunday, and I hope that you do. But if that's the only time they're getting anything spiritual, then good luck. Because home is where we see this all play out. Home is where it's applied. Home is where everything begins. It's where we teach our children diligently what God's will is for our lives. It's where we teach our children to respect us and to honor us. And in so doing, they are respecting God. Then when our lives on earth are through, we can enjoy a great reunion in heaven where our days will be prolonged in the promised land, right? How many of you remember the name Ted Kaczynski? Recognize that guy? How about Unabomber? You remember that name? Ted Kaczynski is a brilliant man. He is now serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole because back in 95, he became disenchanted with the way things were being done in our country and the freedoms that were eroding and, and how modern technology was taking over. And so he moved to Montana and he began mailing bombs to various people through the mail. He killed over 25 people with his bombing rampage. And eventually the FBI caught up to him. And again, like I said, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But I was reading about his story not long ago. And one thing that stuck out to me in the story, it wasn't highlighted, but something that stuck out to me that I found interesting is that Ted Kaczynski has a mother. And you know what? She loves him. 
How? How does this guy have a mother that loves him? Again, this guy senselessly killed over 25 people. In court, during the trial, he refused to look at his mother and even gave testimony about how she was a horrible person and he blamed her. And yet she still writes him letters constantly. In one letter she says this, I want you to know, Ted, that when a child is born, the parents give them the gift of unconditional love for a lifetime. This is true of you. No matter what happens, my love for you will be there for a lifetime. Love your mother. How could a mother love a monster? Well, I think the mothers in the audience and probably the fathers too understand how, right? Our kids may greatly disappoint us. They may hurt our feelings. They may, they may do some things that are so egregious that we can hardly cope. But in our heart of hearts, we always love them. We should love them so much and care about them so much that we will do whatever it takes to pass along our faith. Because of all the gifts that we could give them, that is the greatest. They can be wonderful in sports. They can be amazing academically. They can play four or five instruments. But if they don't get to heaven, it's all for naught. And I realize we have some mothers sitting here this morning that with the help of a father or maybe without the help of a father raised their kids in a spiritual home and their children got older and made a decision out of their own free will to turn away from that godly raising. That's unfortunate. And I'm sorry that you have to deal with that guilt and that pain. Honoring our mother and our father means honoring the godly raising that they gave to us. And there's no time frame on that. Even when they die, if they did it right, we honor that. I want to encourage you this morning to think generationally. Not just our mothers, but our fathers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, everyone. Think about links in a chain or passing the baton so that we can have a great reunion in heaven someday. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather here today. We thank you for mothers, we thank you for fathers, we thank you for grandparents, for aunts, uncles, cousins. We thank you for the church. And we pray that all of us will have a hand in glorifying you and seeking to raise your children. They belong to you. May we give them back to you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, if you're not a child of God and you're visiting with us this morning, you'd like to know more about Jesus Christ and the gospel, let us, let us sit down and talk with you. Maybe you're here because your soul's been stirred and you know you need to do something. Whatever your need is this morning, we want to help you. David's going to lead us in a song. Just come as we stand and as we sing.